back. We're uh, continuing our study of the book of Revelation, and last week we finished with the seven seals, um, and now we'll get into the seven trumpets. And one of the things that I'll highlight here is that, again, they're not chronological. So the seven trumpets are talking about the same time period as the seven seals, but they have a different perspective, which we'll see when we go through. Um, But let's hear The Word of God, if you want to open your Bibles to Revelation chapter 8. So as you know, the chapter and verse notes weren't there in the original. So really, 8.1 is kind of the end of what we would have as chapter 7. So it says, when the Lamb opened the seventh seal, there was silence in heaven for about an hour. And that kind of concludes the previous section. It says, and then I saw, right? We talked before, that doesn't mean then it happened. It means then I, he saw, he's relaying what he saw in the vision. It doesn't necessarily mean that's necessarily what happened next in space and time. Then I saw seven angels who stand before God and seven trumpets were given to them. And another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer. And he was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne. And the smoke of incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God from the hand of the angel. Then the angel took the censer and filled it with fire from the altar and threw it on earth. And there were peals of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. Now the seven angels who had the seven trumpets prepared to blow them. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And the third of the earth earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the grass was burned up. The second angel blew his trumpet, and something like a great mountain, burning with fire, was thrown into the sea, and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died, and a third of the ships were destroyed. The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs of water. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. The fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sun was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. Then I looked, and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on earth at the blast of the other trumpets that the three angels are about to blow. And we'll stop, stop there for today. So that's kind of setting up um, what we want to talk about today. Just by way of review, we talked about that silence in heaven at the end of the seven seals uh, is kind of staggering. And that the whole, all of Revelation up to this point, if you had had a soundtrack, was full of sound and full of furies, full of song, full of wrath, everything. And then to be silent for a half an hour, whether it was literally 30 minutes, we were just talking about the contrast between the cacophony of noise during the present evil age, and then it, it ends, and the silence of that. And Dennis Johnson talks about that as the calm before the storm. Because then the only thing that's left is the great white throne judgment. Sheeps and goats separated forever. And so after everything that was John saw and heard in the seven seals, there's silence. The calm before the storm, and that is 
the end. And during that time period, between the sixth and seventh seal, we recognize that there was an interlude where all of God's people were going to be sealed. And they were going to be sealed with the Holy Spirit. And again, it wasn't just during a certain time period. It was during the whole time period between Christ's ascension and Christ's return. And so it was saying, the interlude was saying, before the four um, seals are opened, make sure that all of the saints, all of the people, the 144,000, everyone from every nation, tribe, and tongue who belongs to the Lord and to the Lamb is sealed. And what does that sealing do for them? It allows them to preserve on the earth during the time of tribulation, right? We talk about it as the preservation of the saints. You aren't going to fall away. Not because you're so amazing and so wonderful, but because God is so amazing and wonderful. And because right now you have an advocate at the right hand of the Father, and what is he doing? What's Jesus doing right now? Interceding for you, that you might not fall away, and you won't. He died for you, he rose for you, he lives for you, he's interceding for you. You are sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. You belong to him now and always. So during this present evil age, you're not going to abandon the faith. And also, it's going to enable you, that sealing of the Spirit is going to enable you to stand in that last day. Remember, one of the cries was, if all these things that we've seen, well, who could possibly stand in that day? The lamb that was slain and everyone everyone who has his seal and everyone who's been washed in the blood of the lamb, everyone who's been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit will be able to stand in that day. Those who don't will not be able to stand. The wrath of God is terrible against those who don't. And that was kind of how that ended when we talked last week. And so then now we move on to the seven seals. And um, the seven seals really have to do with uh, this, uh, the saints on earth. I'm sorry, the seven seals had to do with the saints on earth and in heaven. And the seven trumpets have to do with the wicked. So again, we're going back in time. The seven seals, we're talking about the saints being preserved during the time between the tick of Christ's first coming and the talk of his second coming. During that same time period, then, what happens to the wicked on earth and what happens to them afterwards? And so we're going to see that in the seven, in the seven trumpets. The prayer of the saints actually end up reaching heaven, we find. The prayers of the saints are directly before the throne of God. Not only the martyrs in heaven who had prayed out, how long, O Lord, before you return? But those who are crying out like the widow in our story today, who's going to vindicate me? When is the end going to come? How long, O Lord, is not only the prayer of the saints in heaven, it's the prayer of the saints on earth. And it says that this reaches the heavens. Then I saw the seven angels who stand before God and the seven trumpets were given to them and another angel came and stood at the altar with a golden censer and he stood and was given incense to offer with the prayers of all the saints on the golden altar before the throne and the smoke of the incense with the prayers of the saints rose before God. It's just this, how it keeps on saying the altar and before God is trying to make, it, make us realize that where our prayers go. And the holy of holies, you'll remember, was off limits to people in the Old Covenant with the exception of one day a year when the priest was able to go in there on the Day of Atonement and bring the prayers of the saints uh, before the Lord with golden incense. But now the image is, that's wide open, and all the saints in heaven are under the altar, and all of our prayers from earth are before the altar. 
In other words, we have unprecedented access to the one who has control of history, to the ones in charge of heaven and hell, judgment and salvation, trials, tribulations, rain and drought, famine and fruitful years. That one, the one who is almighty, the one who is our father, that our prayers go up before the very presence of God to the throne. And that's what the earlier images had tried to show where we saw an image of the father on the throne and an image of Christ on the throne meant to comfort his people. The book of Revelation is meant to comfort the church. It ought to freak out non-Christians. But it's meant to comfort the church, not scare the church. Sadly, sometimes the opposite effects. The world shrugs and the church gets freaked out. (laughs) We should be comforted. The lamb that was slain is standing, ruling and reigning. And you've been sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And he's interceding for you at the right hand of God. And you will be preserved here Even though you may die, even though you may be persecuted, yet you will live. And you're going to be able to stand in that last day because you're clothed in the robe of righteousness. So it's talking about these prayers going up to the Lord. And it's going to talk about what happens to the wicked on earth. And so the prayers rise to heaven and the judgments come down from heaven. So our prayers go up. How long, O Lord? What about the wicked? And the judgments come down. In other words, the saints and their prayers matter. Because it's easy to think of prayer as kind of a, eh. It has cosmic and eternal significance. Our prayers matter. God uses our prayers as a means of bringing about his ends. It should strike us that Jesus was a man of prayer. He is fully God and he's fully man. And he constantly prayed. He prayed when he was sorrowful. He prayed when he was hungry. He prayed when he was in need. He rejoiced when people believed. He prayed when he was in agony, right? During the trials and tribulations of this present evil age, our Lord and Savior prayed. Prayers matter. And our prayers are used by God to bring about the purposes for the world and for the church. And so the connection between heaven and earth in this text, is prayer. Our prayers reach up to the very throne, throne room of God, where he hears and cares about what's going on on earth and the persecution of his people. It's interesting when we pray, our Father, right, who is in heaven, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? Forgive us our debts, lead us not in temptation, deliver us from evil. In other words, right? preserve us during all of this. Our Father who is in heaven, let your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Right? There's no rebellion in heaven. Right? There's massive rebellion on earth. And we're saying we want earth to be like heaven, and it will be at the end. There will be no rebellion. There will be no more war anymore. It will be an end to all of those things when the king returns. And so we're praying we want that kingdom to come more and more. We want ourselves to even be more like the angels in heaven. They constantly obey and delight to do the will of God. We constantly are struggling against the will of God. But we won't when he comes. And so that prayer, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, our Father who art in heaven, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Feed us, right? Forgive us. 
Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. Deliver us from the trials. Deliver us from the temptations. Deliver us from the evil one. And he does. He hears and he answers our, our prayers. And so that will continue. And then the text goes on to talk about the seven trumpets. These seven tr- trumpets are the judgments of the lamb that reached the earth. When the saints had prayed, hey, do something about the injustice. What about the wickedness? The Lord does something, both in this age and the age to come. And so the seven angels, with their seven trumpets, prepare to blow them. And it's important to recognize that there's a similar structure to the seven seals and the seven trumpets, because it really helps to understand the text. Like, again, when people try to read it and just go through it chronologically, Structure helps us understand meaning. And what's really interesting is the seven trumpets, they had four, there were four trumpets, and then the fifth trumpet was kind of like the meaning of the trumpets. And then there were the sixth and seventh, and there was an interlude between them. That's exactly what happens here. The first four trumpets are similar to the first four seals. They're things that happen on earth. And then the fifth trumpet is different, and it kind of tells us the meaning of the first four. And then the sixth, and then an interlude, and then the seventh, and then the end. So the structure helps us understand the meaning. Four of them having to do with the earth. One that kind of gives us the meaning of the other four. The sixth one, an interlude, and then the end. And we're going to see that as we go through. So there's a similar structure which helps us understand the meaning again, that it's not, hey, these seven seals happened, and then these seven trumpets happened. The seven seals happened, and the structure is just like this, and it's talking about what's happening to the saints on earth, and then during the seven time period, the seven trumpets, and it's really talking about what happens to the wicked on earth and after. Does that make sense? Is there any questions about that? It really makes a difference in terms of understanding the text. So can anybody think of trumpets in their use in Scripture? Yeah, the wall of Jericho is a perfect one. And that's going to, Angela, you get an A+. Because that is exactly what happens here. Is that there's, I told you there's six and and then the end. In Jericho, there were six days. Marching around, warning, trumpets blowing, right? Not the world's greatest strategy from an earthly perspective. Walk around your enemy's camp, blowing your trumpets, letting them know that you're here, right? And then what happened on the seventh day? Total victory for the Lord, like that. The walls caved in, they overtook him, and they went into the promised land. Remember I told you before, it's more important to read the Old Testament as you read Revelation rather than watch CNN or Fox. You're going to get the meaning Angela's exactly right. You're teaching next week. So So Jericho, the trumpets blast. They're announcing the people of God. They're warning the people of Jericho. Six days, six different trumpets, and then the end. So Jericho's one. Jericho is a great one. Other examples are a manifestation of the Lord's presence on Mount Sinai was announced with trumpets. The trumpets were used to announce the starting or cessation of war. Again, you don't just watch it on the news or text anybody, but you let us, there were certain trumpet sounds that meant, hey, we're being attacked or we're okay now or send help 
They're meant to announce or declare things. All of the festivals of Israel were announced with trumpet blasts. It was prophesied in particular that on the day of the Lord, in Joel 2, 1 through 2, that that would be announced via a trumpet blast as well. It said, Blow a trumpet in Zion. Sound an alarm on my holy mountain. Let all the inhabitants of the land tremble. For the day of the Lord is coming. It is near. A day of darkness and gloom. A day of clouds and thick darkness. Like blackness, there is spread upon the mountains a great and powerful people. Their like has never before been, nor will again be after them throughout the years of all generations. It's announcing the coming day of the Lord, a trumpet. And then what do we know about the second coming of the Lord, that it will be announced with a trumpet blast? Right? Second Thessalonians. For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command and the voice of an archangel with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so we will always be with the Lord. Therefore, encourage one another with these words. Encourage one another with these words. So we get the kind of idea of, from the Old Testament about how trumpets are, are used in Scripture to announce war, to announce peace, to declare something, to warn enemies, to comfort God's people, to be part of their celebration. And we're going to, the sound of a trumpet will announce the return of our king, the second coming of the Lord. And so really, if you don't get anything else, what's going on in the seven trumpets is what happens to those who do not have the seal. The seals, we're addressing what happens to those who have the seals. The seal, not seal, seal of the Lord. So this is saying what happens to those who do not have the seal during this age and the next. So the first six trumpets bring about punishments. They bring about judgment. They bring about warning. And the seventh will bring a final and decisive blow. Like theologian Angela Miller noted, Jericho is the great example of this, isn't it? Think of them marching around for six days, blowing their trumpets, an opportunity for people to repent or run or flee or do something, and then the seventh is the mighty day of the Lord's salvation. There's an, also an exodus motif that goes on throughout the trumpets. If you think of God's people being oppressed, and then they pray out to the Lord. The Lord hears their prayers, and then he punishes the enemies of the Lord, and then he rescues them, and then he takes them to the promised land. So you know that from the Old Testament. You know that from the Old Covenant. You see this motif over and over. Noah, the, the Exodus itself. Jericho, the Israelites, multiple times. And so this is what's going on. You don't need to figure out what's going on in 21st century military operations. <laughs> this had to make sense to the church in the 1st century and in the 3rd century. So their Old Testament tell, oh, this is that same motif. God's people are being oppressed during this time. They cry out to the Lord. The Lord hears and answers their cry. He does something to their enemies. Ultimately comes in total 
vindication of them, crushing their enemies, delivering them, and taking them into the promised land. That's Exodus. (laughs) That's this. Exodus was a type and shadow of what's to come. Before I move on, does that make sense? Any questions about that? Then let's look at the trumpets. The first angel or trumpet. Let me just read them again. The first angel blew his trumpet, and there followed hail and fire mixed with blood, and these were thrown upon the earth. And a third of the earth was burned up, and a third of the trees were burned up, and all the green grass was burned up. Again, this is a vision. And so John's seeing something that's described in this cosmic, radical language that's happening on earth during this time period. If I described my, all of my dreams to you and you tried to take them real woodenly and literally, that would be a mess. You're trying to, he's describing a, a vision that's seen here and it harkens up images. Hail and fire mixed with blood. One third of the earth, the trees and the grass are burned up. This is echoes of Exodus, isn't it? This is the seventh plague against Egypt, where hail rained down. And a note that it says one-third of the earth. So it's not total. And again, don't take it literally. Like, it's literally one-third of this. But it's trying to say, hey, it's a large amount, but not the total amount. When you get to the seventh trumpet, it'll be total. But it's a warning shot across the bow now. The things that happen in this present evil age ought to awaken people to the reality that this isn't all that there is. That there's both judgment and salvation coming. It should have wakened Noah's neighbors. It should have wakened Sodom and Gomorrah. It should have wakened Egypt. It should have wakened people in Jesus' time when Christ rose from the dead. It should awaken us now during this present evil age about all the trouble in the world and all the joy in the world, the mixture of it. That this isn't all that there is. That there's something more. C.S. Lewis once said, if life was truly meaningless, we shouldn't be able to figure it out. Life has to have some meaning. We know that death is unnatural. We long for something more. Because as those made in the image of God, we long for that, we ache for that. And our unregenerate neighbors know that, but they suppress the truth and unrighteousness. This is a known reality. And so it's talking about the problems of this present uh, evil age. The hail and fire mixed with blood thrown to earth. The third is a serious portion, but not a majority. This is also linked with the horsemen and the seals. It's a devastation on earth, either through the burning of crops or through fields, or through economic woes, or through economic famine, like all the things that hail and destruction would affect. Much of our world is dying of starvation. It's part of the curse of this present evil age, isn't it? So that's a reality that's brought upon the wicked during this present evil age. We recognize that we participate in it, but notice that it was a quarter when he talked about the trumpets, I mean the seals. A quarter is less than a third, right? 
So it's trying to say that even the suffering of the saints is less than the suffering of the wicked in this age and the age to come. It's significant in both, but a quarter versus a third, a quarter versus a third. Still trying to just highlight a portion, not the whole. It could be a lot worse, right? God is holding his wrath at bay, and he's holding Satan in place. Martin Luther once said that Satan is God's devil. He can go so far and no further. And we wonder sometimes, why did you even let him go this far? But he still can go so far and no further. And he certainly can't take any of God's elect. He can do massive damage. He can kill them. But they will rise again. (laughs) They'll be mocked by the Lord. Because whatever Satan tries to do, God can undo or override. And so this is bringing destruction during this present evil age on a wicked and rebellious people just like the plague in Egypt did. And note that this is mostly dealing with um, the land, right? Oops. This is dealing with the land. The second trumpet, the text says this, The second angel blew his trumpet and something like a great mountain burning with fire was thrown into the sea and a third of the sea became blood. A third of the living creatures in the sea died and a third of the ships were destroyed. What does that remind you of? A third of water becoming blood. The Nile, right? So this reminds us, again, an echo of Exodus. This one was the seventh plague with hail. This one is the first plague with the blood, the Nile becoming blood, which really devastated the community, right? It was dependent upon the Nile for life. In the Exodus motif, God was showing his power over all the Egyptian gods. Each one of the ten plagues was specifically Yahweh saying, I can best that God. That God doesn't even exist. I'm in charge of the hail. I'm in charge of the locusts. I'm in charge of life and death. I'm in charge of the Nile. I'm in charge of fertility. All the other gods are worthless idols. And so here, it carries that same image. It should it will be sending off bells in people's heads who are familiar with the Exodus motif about the Nile being turned to blood. And again, note that it's a third. A significant amount, but not the total amount. There's also, we have a few minutes, so I will get into this. It'll become more clear later. But note that it says, and a third of the ships were destroyed. This would be really meaningful to people in the first century because Rome was a seafaring people. So at the time that this was written, Christians were being oppressed by Rome. Rome is a seafaring people who did much of their conquest via the water and much of their trade via the water. And so now here are saints crying out, rescue us from these evil oppressors. Harkens back to Egypt. Rescue us from those who are our oppressors. And so now they're crying out to the Lord to rescue them from these sea-bearing people. And John sees an image of their water source being turned into to blood and their navy, right? Their ships being destroyed. Showing his power over them and showing their limited power. Powerful, yes, 
a third, but not full. A third's a lot, but it's not total. And so it's really meant to draw this image. And then when it says he saw something like a great mountain, we're going to see as we start to get more and more into Revelation that the image of a mountain is Babylon. And it represents evil. It represents wicked. It represents every nation that is opposed to God. That could be Nazi Germany. That could be any wicked empire. That could be the Egyptians, the Phoenicians, the Babylonians. It could be secular America. Any nation that raises its fist against the Lord. And so that image of a mountain is really saying that all of these people, all of these empires are trying to be God. They're trying to replace God, which is the original sin, right? This is what Satan did. Before creation, even he rebelled against the Lord and took a whole bunch of angels with him because he wanted to be God. This is what Adam and Eve did. They wanted to be God. This is what all sin in our heart is. This is what people at the time of Jesus did when they said, we will not have this man rule over us. It's rebellion against God, and it rears its ugly head in our personal lives. It realizes, raises its head in our institutions and in our governments as well. And God had already said in Psalm 2, Why do the nations rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel against, against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, Let us burst their bonds apart and cast away their cords. He who sits in heaven laughs. It's hard during that time period. <laughs> If you're living in Egypt, or you're living in first century Rome, or you're living currently where many of our brothers and sisters are persecuted and cannot gather together, it's really difficult living during that time period. But the point of it all, and the point of what you even heard in, this, in the morning sermon is God is an avenger of his people. He will bring justice. He will bring his wrath. He will bring his condemnation. And it will come soon. You can bank on it. And so all of those nations that have mocked the Lord and mocked his people, mocked his gospel, disobeyed him, they're going to be punished. They're being punished now, in some sense. They'll be punished in full when that seventh trumpet blasts, when the king returns. And so it's really meant to capture a picture of this. So when it's talking about a mountain being thrown into the sea, you remember that when the Tower of Babel was built, they said, let us make ourselves like God. Let us make ourselves like the Most Mighty. Let us build a temple, a ziggurat, a, a mountain to the Lord, and we'll ascend up to him. And the text is so funny. It says, God said, let us go down and see what they're doing, right? It's so puny, I can't even, what's this? He sits in the heavens and laughs. They wanted to make themselves God. Nations want to make themselves God. People want to be God. They don't want to worship him. They don't want to love him. They don't want to submit to him. They don't want to believe him. They want to be God. And God will not allow that to go on. We sang this morning, right? God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth gives way, though the mountains be moved into the heart of the sea, Though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains tremble at its swelling, the God of Jacob is on our side. 
So when the mountain is thrown into the sea, now, during this present evil age, when there's all these different trials and tribulations, be they famine, be they sword, be they persecution, be they destruction, whatever, we trust. And we look to the Lord knowing that he's coming and that he's coming soon. Next, let's look at the third angel. Get back to Revelation. It says, The third angel blew his trumpet, and a great star fell from heaven, blazing like a torch, and it fell on a third of the rivers and on the springs. The name of the star is Wormwood. A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it had been made bitter. So here, right, in brief, a great star fell from heaven, a third of the rivers. It keeps on highlighting that. It's going to say all later. It's setting you up. A third, a third, a third, a third. And the name of the star was Wormwood, which for those of you who read Screwtape, right, this is the name that C.S. Lewis used for one of the devil's minions. Right? A third of the waters became Wormwood, and many people died from the water because it was bitter. Wormwood is a really bitter substance. Uh, it's lethal. And notice how throughout history people have used things, water, as a weapon of warfare. You poison your enemy's water supply to kill them off, or you ensure that they cannot get their rations. Even what's going on in the Middle East right now, some of the things with what people are trying to do with waters and supplies to affect other people or other nations. Recall that Hezekiah built a tunnel to protect Jerusalem to make sure that during the warfare underneath the wall they could get water. Water is essential to life. And it's just talking about by making the water bitter or lethal, this very thing that's meant to be life-giving is now deadly. And that's how things are in this present evil age. And Jeremiah says, I will feed them, this people, with wormwood and give them poison water to drink. Saying that the judgment of the Lord is even to poison or to kill rebels, those who rebel against the Lord. This Lord plays for keeps. You're either for him or you're against him. And in Revelation in particular, we see everything in black and white. In the rest of Scripture, eh, it's kind of gray. <laughs> in Revelation, you either are a shining saint in a white robe, singing worthy as the lamb, or you look like the beast. But that's a vision. That's what John sees. That's what it looks like from heaven. It's really stark. It's really clear who is and who is not the lambs. The consequences of sin, the judgments of sin are often carried within themselves, it's trying to say. So if you think about it, right, many of the consequences of our sin are judgments that God puts into the sin itself. So for instance, if you're a chain smoker, it's likely that you're going to have some health challenges related to that. It's not a sin to smoke, but to do it excessively or abusively, you're going to carry the damage within your own body. Think of drunkenness, right? It's not a sin to drink, but if you're given to drink and you drink too much, you're going to damage your liver. You're going to damage your relationships. Like it's built into it in itself. Someone like me struggles with an eating disorder. There's problems with gluttony. 
50 pounds overweight means too much on my heart, too much on my knees, too much on these things. It carries the consequences in, in it itself. You have to struggle against these things in this life. Or think about unchastity. If you cheat on your spouse, that's going to cause problems with your relationship or trust or other people or, you know, in terms of divorce and finances and kids, it's messy. To disobey the Lord brings consequences in this life and in the next, and some of them in the very act of it. They're sometimes even built in by the Lord to protect us. Sorry, I thought that was on silent. So we have five more minutes. So they're built into that, and the third one is trying to show that. And so the fourth angel says, the fourth angel blew his trumpet, and a third of the sea was struck, and a third of the moon, and a third of the stars, so that a third of their light might be darkened, and a third of the day might be kept from shining, and likewise a third of the night. What does this remind you of in Exodus? What was one of the plagues? What? Darkness. Yeah. Exactly. So it's hearkening back to one of the plagues as well. The ninth plague was darkness fell over all of Egypt. And that was a day, right, when they didn't have flashlights, they didn't have electricity, they didn't have all these things. Darkness is a huge deal. It's scary. It's often a symbol or a metaphor for sin as well. And so darkness is over the land. Would you say that our world is getting better every day in every way? (laughs) Or would you say there's a darkness over the land and sometimes it seems like that darkness is getting more? Ah, but the light has come into the world. And he's returning. And there's salvation for him. But judgment for those who don't. He's come into the world. And so what's going on in this then is that there's this triple woe that comes at the very end before the next trumpet. It says, Then I looked and I heard an eagle crying with a loud voice as it flew directly overhead, Woe, woe, woe to those who dwell on earth at the blasts of the other trumpets and of the three that are about to blow. So think of a bird of prey flying over saying, Woe, 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 like warning, and even more like curse it. To all, everything that's happened here, he said, and even more so after after these next three are going to be opened. And so this is a warning to the world. All of these things should awaken you to the reality of God and to his holiness and to his judgment and to what the consequences of sin are. Death itself should awaken us. When we stand there at a funeral, it's one of the saddest and hardest times to recognize a lifeless, dead body. But we also know that that's not the end. I've told you before, the worst thing that can happen to you isn't to die. The worst thing that can happen to you is to die apart from Jesus Christ. Because when you wake up in the next life, which is what you see in the seventh seal and the seventh trumpet and what you see in Revelation, it will be too late. And so the bird flying overhead, the bird of prey saying, whoa, 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 is a warning to the world, come. Come to Jesus to be saved. Come to the lamb slain. Come now. Because after that seventh one, it's too late. And God plays for keeps. He's not joking around. 
He's going to mete out punishment and hell on all of those who reject him and eternal life and peace and glory forever for those who come to him. In and through Jesus Christ. Not because God winks at sin, but because Jesus Christ literally paid the penalty for our sin. The wages of sin is death, and he died. On the cross, he endured the wrath of God, and it was satisfied. So God's wrath is against mankind. And the only way to deal with it is either to have it paid for you by Jesus Christ and be sealed with the Holy Spirit. So his wrath, like the sign on the doorpost in Egypt, passes over you, and it went on Jesus. Or when the king returns, you'll be under the wrath of God forever and ever and ever. And that's an awful message on the one hand, and it's a glorious message that the church is called to proclaim during this present evil age so that people come to Jesus Christ, that they can be saved, that they can be saved from the wrath of God, that they can know for sure that in that day they will stand, not because of themselves, but because of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you We thank you for the reality of this. It's difficult to think about wrath and to think about judgment, but we recognize it is indeed what our sin deserves. It is indeed what we merited. But we thank you that you are merciful and that you are gracious and that you sent your own son to save us, to pay the penalty for our sin, to endure your wrath, to die in our stead. The wages of sin is death and he died for us and yet he rose again on the third day and rules and reigns on our behalf and you've sent your own Holy Spirit to seal us in this present evil age that we won't fall away and that we'll be able to stand in the next. And Father, everybody in this room has friends and family who don't yet know you, who don't let call upon you. And our hearts grieve and ache because we know that this day is coming. And Father, we pray that you would use your word, that you would use your spirit, that you would use us, that you would use your providential oversight of the entire world to awaken them to the reality that death isn't all that there is, that judgment awaits as well, and that they would find the way of escape that you have provided in through Jesus Christ. We pray that you would be merciful to them and that you would give them salvation. In Jesus' name, amen.